Greetings, troubled listeners. Welcome back to the Troubled Men Podcast. I am Renee Coman, sitting in the safe house on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, buddy. What's up? What's oh, up not you? too much, man. I'm, d- I'm doing, hanging in there, you know, uh, feeling pretty good today. You know, it's uh, my the 10% headroom I have between, um, you know, feeling normal and freaking the fuck out is I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, at 90% or something. So it's as, as good as can be expected. How are you? I'm, I'm fine, man. I'm uh, enjoying, you know, being quarantined as always. I'm enjoying... Uh, uh, being able to um, to go to my job and uh, do really absolutely nothing, and then come really? home. Yeah, it's really because they, you know, I work at the big college campus here in town, and and, and they still think they're going to have a, a fall semester, and right. the way things are going, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, especially I mean, I- especially because we have a holiday weekend coming up. Mm-hmm. And you know what happened uh, after our last holiday weekend? Right. Uh, the spikes. Yes. The deaths and all that. And now we have, we're coming up on 4th of July. And, uh, you know, people are going to be stupid. And they're going to go out there and think they're better than anyone and, 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 uh, and die. So, you know, like I said before, it's been nice knowing you. You know, and, so, and it's going to get closer and closer, you know, towards the, the day they want to start school. And then I think... I think at the end of the month, you're going to see another, another spike in uh, uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? you know, so, uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm wearing my mask. I'm washing my hands. I'm, uh, you know, I'm putting lotion on my body. Okay. <laughs> you got to stay supple. You got to stay moisturized, yeah. man. Yeah, I'm putting lotion on my... And I noticed uh, uh, it's weird. I mean, you probably, you know, you, you have a big house and stuff like that, much bigger than my house. Uh, mm-hmm. I find myself uh, just doing things around the house. Uh, I did a lot of yard work today. You know, I went out there in the, in the heat. The right. heat's been brutal this week, too. It's very hot. It's, it's gotten to the point in the summer where you can go out at 10 o'clock at night and still sweat standing in one right. position, no, right. not even moving around. It's like 84, 85 degrees standing it's, still. It, it's <laughs> awful. It's really awful. Um, but, you know, I miss, I miss my, my ring room. You know, I, I, I'm not at the ring room. I'm at home tonight. But okay. I, you know, the ring room uh, has a sauna and steam room, which at my age I enjoy the most out of anything there. Right. Um, but they don't, it's not, I can't go in there. It's, you know, it's closed because of the whole thing. So I find myself, uh, I, I'm, I, th- I don't know if I told you this. I like doing the yard work in this heat because it gives me a sense like I'm, like I'm in a sauna where I'm just sweating like crazy. Yes. Get those heat shock proteins flowing yeah. in your body. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I wear like a long sleeve shirt and pants and I get out there and after like an hour, I, I know I've sweated out like every toxin in my body and, and, nice. and, and a lot of calories and stuff like that. So I'm trying to stay in shape, even though I, you know, I, like last week, so I think I told you I've gained over 60 pounds right. <laughs> on butter, on butter. Yeah. Um, and being bored at times and stuff like that, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know if I brought this up, but I've been wanting to talk about this for a while and I can't remember if I did or not, but, <laughs> okay. uh, Let's, a couple weeks ago, a, shot. a few weeks ago, I, I was home just watching the television and 
watching uh, documentaries on the on the Amazon or Netflix or Hulu, whatever the hell channel it was. And did did I talk about these two uh, rock and roll documentaries? A uh, one by Clive Davis. Did I t- did I tell you? No, about no, it? you didn't. But I saw that one recently myself. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. It was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you think you know a lot about Clive Davis, but you don't know all there is because there's so much, man. I didn't know he was bisexual. You know, I yeah, did not neither know that. did I. Well, I think I think he didn't know for a long time, maybe. Right. You know? So yeah. it, was, it was as much as a surprise to him as it was to us. I don't know. I don't know. So I watched back-to-back documentaries, one on Clive Davis and then one on Paul Williams, little Paul Williams. You I know, love Memphis? Paul Williams, yes. yes. Yeah, the singer-songwriter, very short yeah. little guy, Phantom mm-hmm. of the Paradise. Right. Well, this, this guy made the a documentary. Yeah, yeah. This guy made a documentary about him, and he was a big fan. And he, like me, thought he had died, but no, he's still no. alive. He's still alive mm-hmm. to this day, touring, oh, yeah. and playing Vegas, and playing conventions and stuff like that. Well, you know, um, he just just had. I'm sorry. I'll you you go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say he just. Uh, th- there was a, a, uh, a Daft Punk, you know, that, that techno band, Daft sure. Punk, English group. Sure. So they used him to sing this, this song maybe like six or seven years ago, maybe a little, few more than that. I think it was called Touch, I Remember Touch. Uh-huh. And that was re-released in, uh, in England during this, this whole quarantine thing because the, the whole point of the song is like, you know, kind of post-apocalyptic where no one can touch. And so, and it was, it was a big hit. It might've gone to number one this time. So Paul Williams, not only is he still alive, I mean, but, but he's, he's, uh, he's a chart topper in the last couple of months. Well, this documentary is really good. It's about a a guy who, who's in the entertainment business and follows him around for a few months or maybe even a year. And Paul Williams is kind of like, yeah, you can follow me around. And he says, stop following me. You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But they bond and stuff. But, you know, I remember Paul Williams, like, on The Muppets. And he would, right. co- he would like, he would fill in for uh, Dinah Shore show and stuff. Mm-hmm. But th- this guy's an Oscar, a Tony, an Emmy winner. I mean, this guy did it all, man. And did you know that, you know, everyone, he was so small of a guy that he was born in, like, Nebraska or something like that. And he was born very small. And yeah, so was doc- I, surprisingly. But uh, anyway, but the go doctors, on. the doctors, and his dad, uh, his dad was like some macho guy, and says, "Well, this kid's like, you know, he's gonna get, you know, bullied and stuff because he's so small." So they gave him this steroid to help him grow, and it did the exact opposite. It, it kept him small. Hmm. <laughs> it made it, made it, it stunted his growth wow. even more. Like if they just gave him two packs of cigarettes or something like that. So yeah. I just thought I just thought it was an amazing documentary about this guy, and he did everything. He, he, I remember him on Beretta. He was on Love Boat. He was on you know everything, and and he was a, apparently he's a, he he likes to jump out of planes and you know parachute out of planes and stuff. Huh. And okay, he, he's been like clean and sober for like twenty years. So he he does like the the, the twelve step tour and stuff like that. And it's it's a okay. documentary worth checking out because he, and he's still a funny guy. He's still a very entertaining guy. And and you cannot imagine yeah, he's, he's, you cannot imagine the songs that he wrote that you say, wait a minute, he wrote that. And it's like he right. wrote that. He wrote that. Which brings me to segue back to the Clive Davis documentary. Okay. Which 
you know, Clive Davis was a star maker and, and, you know, he signed millions of great acts and stuff. But the one thing that I found so surprising in that documentary was that Barry Manilow, Barry Manilow, uh, right. not like Paul, Barry Manilow didn't write any of his songs. And no, thought, no. And I thought he was this big singer-songwriter all Wait, these years. No, no, that's not true. He actually did write a lot of his songs, just not all of his hits. Um, well, no, I, um, I researched it, and basically the only big like top 10 or top 20 hit that he ever wrote was Copacabana. Is that right? Yeah, everything else huh. was written by somebody else that he huh. covered and, and that made number one hits, like Mandy, uh, that song about New England, uh, all sorts. The only really big top ten hit that he wrote was Copacabana. That's it. Okay, one of I my was, least favorite, but uh, you know, right? Yeah, and I was so upset because girl, I I love Manolo. I just used to, I loved his stuff. You know, I thought, man, this guy's got it. And it very, love Manolo. That's for dis- sure. It was very disappointing to me to know that he didn't write. You know, and pretty uh, much. Ironically, his biggest hit, I write the songs. <laughs> Right, right, yeah, it wasn't written yeah. by him. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't write the songs. I didn't write the songs. It makes the whole world move or whatever, you know, that I kind think, of stuff. I think yeah. un- unlike Clive Davis, uh, uh, Barry Manilow, not bisexual. Right, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, but uh, Total you know, Barry Manilow was very, had, had a very successful uh, jingle career. I think uh, like a lot of popular jingles, I, I, I'm not sure exactly. It might have been like, uh, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, wouldn't you like right. to be a pepper too? I think that yeah, might be a Barry yeah. Manilow song. He also did, I think, uh, Flush, Flush, What a Relief It Is. I think that was his huh, jingle. Okay. <laughs> plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that was his jingle. I think that was right. his. And I think Where's the Beef was also his motto. Okay. Well, not much of a song there, but but yeah, the yeah. words were great. <laughs> well, he was, he, you know, it was the 80s and he was gay and he was looking. You know, um, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, getting back to uh, just to, to not leave uh, Paul Williams, um, a couple of other interesting things. You know, Paul Williams was a child actor before right. he was a songwriter, and he was in this movie, very strange movie, The Loved One, that I think Jonathan Winters was in. A whole lot of it's like kind of one of those mad, 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 mad world movies where there's a lot of cameos by big stars they, t- they, he- t- they touch on that in this documentary they touch on his early film career because that's before he even wrote one tune he was an actor first right and he was and he started writing songs because he would had kind of uh played out his movie career and it, the, it had ended he'd grown up he wasn't getting any more roles and i think he he, he maybe had a guitar and could play just a couple of chords and he thought maybe I could write some songs, maybe I, maybe I could do that. And one of the, the, the famous uh, stories about his songs is, you know, the Carpenters, uh, uh, Richard Carpenter, you know, they'd had the hit on Close to You, the, uh, you know, Burt Bacharach song. Which was a commercial jingle that Paul... Well, well, well right, right. So, so uh, uh, Richard Carpenter's watching television and there's like a bank commercial... Where, where they have a couple getting married, and right. there's a song playing, uh, We've Only Just Begun. Right. And he's listening, he's like, boy, that's really good. And it's like, you know, they, it only plays one verse. And so he calls, he figures out who the, the agency was, and he calls them up, and he, they say, who, he says, who wrote that song? And Paul Williams. So he calls up Paul Williams, and uh, 
he says, Hey man, I love that song. Is there a whole song there? Do you have like a second verse and, and stuff? And he, and Paul Williams lies to him. He goes, Oh yeah, it's a whole song. <laughs> there was only one verse to it. <laughs> so Paul Williams said, then I, I thought, fuck the carpenters, man, this is my, could be my big chance. And he sat down and wrote a second verse and a, and a bridge to it, you know? And of course, uh, even bigger hit than close to you. Well, there's a funny bit in that documentary. Now, I don't know if the, there must have been a, a, a documentary about the Carpenters. Well, there's a scene where Richard Carpenter is like home at his house in his bedroom watching TV, and he sees that commercial, and he starts freaking out, just like you were talking about. Right. And, his mom, and, his, and apparent, I don't think there was a reenactment or something like that, but okay. his mom walks into the bedroom and goes, Richard, what are you doing up so late? And he goes, Mom, this is a hit song that we're, we're looking for. This is a hit song. This is it. And the mom goes, why don't you, this is so hilarious. She goes, why don't you calm down and take another Quaalude? (laughs) (laughs) It's so hilarious. So check out this documentary. I don't know if it's still on Netflix or not, but it's worth two hours. It's fucking great. Nice. It really is. But uh, yeah, I thought, it's been in my notebook for like the last month. And knowing, you know, sometimes I forget to cross things out. So I didn't know right. if I mentioned it or not, but I'm no. glad I ha- I waited till today to, to say it. But yeah, it, no, and that's all those things. I'm I'm very interested, in, and the nation will be too, because this is uh, the kind of minutia that the nation eats up, man. Right, exactly. So what's well, been going on of, with you? Well, I was just thinking, just to to pivot off of uh, you know, I mentioned Mad 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 World. Carl Reiner uh, passed away yeah. this week. You know, the great the 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 giant comedic giant Carl Reiner. Yeah, he was like I, I 98 knew. or something. He was yes. very old. I mean, this guy, yes. I mean, I saw the last time I saw him, he was on um, a podcast, uh, okay. a stand-up comedian's podcast, and this was about three, four years ago, and he was sharp as ever, man. He was fucking yes. nailing it, you know, and it's sad. Yeah. You know, they, they go, and, and uh, I think it was funny because my wife showed me about three days before his death, Carl Reiner and his daughter, or maybe his granddaughter, and Mel Brooks were all laying down in some huge, like, king-size bed wearing Black Lives Matters t-shirts. So uh-huh. he was still, you know, he was still, you know, up to the day. This was only... You know, when, when we saw that Carl Reiner had passed, someone in the room with me said, you know, said, is Mel Brooks still alive? And... <laughs> And I knew that Mel Brooks was still alive. And I said, yes. But so this kind of let the cat out of the bag that yes, Mel Brooks is still alive. I was going to ask you if you knew, but then another person, uh, I'll, I'll, I had a third one. I'll ask, do you, uh, Norman fell, uh, excuse me, Norman Lear alive or dead? I think Norman. Cause they just, I think he might still be alive because they just gave, you know, they have that uh, Kennedy's Honor Show right. from uh, where they honor like four or five different artists in music or acting or whatever. And I think right. last last year's Kennedy's Honors, he was he was honored. Yes, yes. Norman honored. Lear is quite alive, 97 years old. Yeah, so yeah, I got that right. Yeah, he's still alive. And Mel Brooks also is alive. Sh- also sharp as attack, all three of those guys, man. Right, you know, and you know why? I'll tell you why. Because I saw, uh, you know, that show "Comedians in Cars" with Jerry Seinfeld getting coffee. That show, yes, you watch that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he had Mel Brooks 
drive around LA with him. They went and got coffee and Mel told his stories about the career. But did you know, well, just, just up to last week, I'm sure, but Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner would get together every day, Monday through Friday at six o'clock to eat deli and watch Jeopardy together. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. No, I did not. <laughs> yeah. So they, it's, it's, they both live in Beverly Hills, you know, pretty close, I'm sure. And they both, mm-hmm. for, for years, now I don't know what his health like was in the last few months, but, but for, for up to like maybe last year, those two guys who've known each other probably since the 40s would get together and have, I think from Junior's Deli in LA, they'd get, you know, some deli stuff and some coleslaw, whatever, and they'd sit and watch Jeopardy together. Yeah. A favorite pastime of yours. Yes, it is. It is a favorite pastime of mine. I'm a Jeopardy guy. I'm a uh, Trebek head, as they want to yeah. call it. A Trebek <laughs> head, you know. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's sad. They come and go, and, you know, uh, uh, I'm looking outside right now. The weather's looking nice. And uh, I heard, though, I heard, though, that, um, that last week you had a, uh, a gathering at your house, uh, the yammering bitches got together at your house. <laughs> well, yeah, it wasn't my uh, my shindig. It wasn't well, wasn't I, my I, affair. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know it wasn't your idea, but uh, I heard that the yammering of bitches group uh, took place. Well, that's in- not how they're officially known, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they were here. Yeah, <laughs> they were there. I'm sure you hid and you got your cocktail and hid somewhere. I'm sure because I'm thinking it was all outside social distance and all that kind of stuff. Yes. We had the backyard, you know, we've, we've, the, we've redone the backyard, uh, you know, put a bunch of grass and new plants and somehow then people started giving us patio sets. So we now have like <laughs> four different sets of like patio furniture with chairs. It looks like a fucking restaurant out there, man. Oh, well. So yeah, they were they were all uh, you know had their own be your calling, and, man. Start start a uh, start a little, uh, a little outdoor little a bistro. Uh, cafe. Yeah, yeah a little bistro I, back there. I know a, I know a strolling accordion player who's available. There you go. Okay, well you have to give us his name before this is all <laughs> over. Put out some candles, make it very romantic. You know, it, it could work. You know, it right, could be right. that it could be that last place, the last meal bistro. You could call it. Okay. <laughs> end, end of the line. Yeah. End of the line bistro or something like that. Yes, I like that. Bistro end of the line. I like yeah, that. there you go. There you go. Listen, I hear this voice, this third voice. Let's introduce this yes. cat because he's exciting to me. Yes, yes, yes. He's got a lot going on. He's, uh, he's actually he comes from your neck of the woods, man. He's a California native. Uh, he, he came to New Orleans uh, to study music. Uh, he went to Tulane University. Again, uh, you know, it's, there's a through line there between him and, and Manny Chevrolet. And, uh, but, but then uh, he, he, he stayed like many people that attend Tulane. They forget where they're from. And, uh, you know, d- adopted New Orleans as his home. And, and uh, he's an he's a organ player, piano player. Somewhere along the line, he falls in with uh, a couple of ne'er-do-wells like uh, Alex McMurray and then, uh, then Jonathan Fralick. And, and uh, he and Jonathan Fralick wind up founding the New Orleans Klezmer All-Stars. And he starts playing accordion, winds up becoming an accordion player. It, it, uh, this happenstance uh, sort of, sort of uh, directs the whole... The, the or affects the whole direction of the rest of his life. Anyway, we'll get into all that. So without further ado, 
Welcome, Mr. Glenn Hartman. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you. Happy to be Welcome. here. Welcome. Welcome, Glenn. From uh, Long Beach, California, like where where Paul Williams went to high school. Really? <laughs> LBC, baby. Yeah, I think his kid, his kid died. I mean, his dad died when he was young, and he moved to California to, you know, to live with his aunt. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Went, yeah. To, went to Wilson High in Long Beach, just down the road from where I came up. Yeah, his dad hmm. apparently um, uh, used to drink and drive a lot while Paul was in the back seat. And uh, one time, Paul wasn't in the back seat, and that's how it ended for his dad, something like that. Oh, Instead geez, of, well. And the dad left the mom with such a debt that he moved in with his aunt in in, uh, in Long Beach. They, they so, sold him. They sold him to they California. Basically, basically, yeah. They <laughs> said, get on this train. Get out of here. You know, and uh, yeah. But he had a rough life, you know. But he's still he's alive and kicking, man, the little guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now, Glenn, was your Glenn was your family from California? I mean, had had you been out there? Had they been out there for a while, or uh, uh, where they kind of from? kind of the classic, um, you know, immigrant story? All my grandparents were basically born in in Europe, and then they came through Ellis Island. My parents were born in New York, and then moved west. You know, in the moved west, yes. And so, um, I have I'm the youngest of four kids, and Two, the first two were born on the East Coast, and then the last two were born in California. Okay. Now, are you the only uh, non-doctor of, of your siblings? <laughs> um, no, I have, okay. but I am the only um, failure. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> okay, um, well, so, how do you think you wound up on this podcast? <laughs> you know, I've a lot of trouble. I've caused my fair share of trouble. So, uh, yeah, I have uh, two doctors and a and a and a very accomplished uh, Silicon Valley engineer. Okay, uh, and they're all back in Cali. They're all in California. Yeah, and I was there post Katrina for a long, you know, like trying to make my mark, but um, it just chewed me up and spit me out. Did it? Because when I saw you out there, you seemed like you were thriving. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, I'm a good at the facade. Let's just put it that way. It was eating, eating me up inside, Renee. Okay. (laughs) Well, listen, so how old are you? I'll be 52 next, next month. Okay. So we're a little older than you. So you're in Long Beach and uh, you're a teenager. Is that when you start getting into music or? Yeah. Yeah. I was in, uh, you know, rock and roll bands and, uh, which bands name a few. Well, I was in a band. Co- they were none you'd ever heard of. I was in a band called the mixers and then a band called Johnny Pimento and the olives and then a <laughs> band called the rhyme. But I was playing like, uh, high school dances and I've got a few gigs up at UC Santa Barbara. And, um, and then we got what we thought was our big break. We were going to, got asked to, open for the bangles and they were like oh you're too young <laughs> you can't do oh. it so that was the the beginning and end of that and then i moved to new orleans so, uh, so you moved like right after high school to new orleans? yeah i moved the literally the week that i turned 18 i moved okay. to new orleans and to go so, so you didn't do much of the uh going up to hollywood club scene or no know, not no not really but it was more like um we, because I lived in Long Beach, so it was yeah. go see Fishbone right. in Orange County, go to Oingo Boingo at the at the whatever 
amphitheater on Halloween or like that kind of a the Irvine Meadows, yes. whatever that yes. kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, they always had their big like five night Halloween show. I remember Oingo Boingo. Yes. They, they stretched uh, Halloween into five nights of sellout <laughs> crowds and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, they you know they that's what their thing was. I mean, they they were good at it. Um, yeah. So Fishbone, see, I I knew I I knew those guys like Norwood and stuff like that. Uh, I, I kind of. I didn't really grow up with it, but I hung out in those same circles as those guys. And, and uh, it's funny how they're still touring those guys. They're still yeah. around. Well, I've got to do some. Um, I play with um, Eric McFadden some. I don't know if you know uh-huh. Eric. And, he's, and so I've got to do some gigs, like ancillary gigs with, with some of those guys at this point, right. which was oh, really nice. exciting for me because I was so I was so – you know, starstruck. I could barely speak. They probably thought I yeah. was ridiculous. <laughs> but <laughs> well, so did you come to what? What attracted? What caused you to? I mean, what made you want to go to Tulane? Was it the New Orleans music? Were you already kind of into uh, you know the New Orleans piano style, or just uh, you had Tulane no, reputation? No, it was a, it was it was it was way less um, calculated than that. It was. I had an older brother who had answered a, um, it was back, you could apply to college by like checking a lot of boxes. They had like this universal application and he mm-hmm. was like, oh yeah, Tulane, lot of, you know, like checked like 10 boxes and he got accepted to Tulane, went out, checked it out and was like, oh, that seems fun. And I went and visited him when I was maybe 15 years old and, um, he took me the first night to K Paul's and it was when you used to have to wait in line to get right. in and they would seat you with random people. You know, you were two people, they'd put you at a four top with people you didn't know. And so I'm there at 15 years old and my brother is uh, only five years older than me, 20, you know, and they give him a, and he says, I'll have a Cajun martini. And the waiter looks at me. He looks at my brother and he says, for two? And my brother's like, <laughs> sure. So there I was having a martini, you know, uh-huh. um, at 15. And, and I was, and it was, of course, it was before dinner drink. So right. I was, I couldn't even hold my head up. You know, at that point I was, I, I remember putting my head like back against the brick wall. And um, so from there he took me to see John Prine on the Riverboat President. And fed oh, me, wow. fed me, um, quaaludes. No, like I knew you were going to say that. Seven man. and I seven. I don't know. You know, and then I was like, "Wow, oh, New Orleans. This seems." But I just so was couldn't believe. Like anywhere we'd go to, we'd go to brunch. I'd order orange juice, and the waiter would be like, "How about I put a little champagne in there?" I was like, "Oh, I kind of want to live here. This is kind of fun." <laughs> okay. So let me ask you something. You're at K. Paul's. You have that uh, dirty martini. Uh, and you're seated with two strangers. What did they think? Those strangers. They, I remember them just looking at me and laughing. <laughs> but I don't, you know. I remember the appetizer was okay. it was like those little Cajun popcorn, which was those little fried crawfish tails. And that's about. Um, look, I grew up in Long Beach, California, where they, where it was exciting to ride my bicycle to the Seven Eleven. That was about the the level of culture. And so to, I remember stepping off the plane in New Orleans and just the air hitting me and 
you know, just the, the age of the everything was extraordinary just to a kid who grew up in Southern California, you know, um, just the trees and it was so alive. And I thought Popeye's tasted unbelievable, you know? Um, (laughs) Well, no, Orange County, I mean, you know, Long Beach, Orange County, it's, it's very just lots of cement, you know, just, it's just, it's just incorporated. It's industrial. It's, it's corporate. Yeah. Strip strip malls malls and stuff like that. See, I grew up, I grew up like in Venice, Santa Monica. That's where I grew up. Yeah, a little and, more and going on more there. Of, yeah, a little bit more going on. I had the boardwalk at Venice to go to. And when I got of age, I got my license. You know, I had friends. And we'd go to Hollywood and we'd see shows and like that. So I understand. Yeah, I understand the total, the shock and, and like the shock and awe of like, wow, this is fucking good. Yeah, and yeah. especially the, the, the drinking age was 18 and it was – extraordinary and and a two lane is pretty insulated and they didn't make much of an effort to uh encourage students to experience new orleans and not i mean not actively but i remember um when i was a freshman at tulane you could get into tipatina's for free with your tulane id wow um i think certainly monday to thursday and um so I kind of figured that out and I would just, and I just, like, I remember just going to starting to go to Tipitina's. I remember the first time I saw the Neville brothers at Tipitina's and I thought that, um, you know, uh, Africa was a red hot chili peppers tune. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and I was, that I remember going like thinking, okay, so do I just stop playing music or do I, like have to go home and reassess because figure out what the fuck is going on here. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I was so, you know, it just kind of went from there, but, um, I was going to say at Tulane, you quickly ran into, uh, uh, that degenerate Alex McMurray, right? Yeah. Well, I was, I'm a little older than Alex. Um, and I was a year ahead of him in school and, um, Oh, okay. So I, so I was a year ahead of Alex and I did play some gigs, um, at Tulane, I ended up meeting uh, a, a, someone in Audubon Park who brought me down to Miami Beach um, to join to play in their band in the summertime, and that's really when I kind of got hooked because we ended up on this wave. We wrote a song um, called Deco Street. This was right when kind of South Beach was coming back, and we ended up getting the key to the city. I got the key mm. to the city of Miami Beach, like in nineteen. 19- 87 or 88 or something. And it was pretty funny because my parents were like, go to Miami. You'll see how much it sucks to be a musician. And I just went down there and smoked pot and, um, (laughs) you know, ended up getting, if you you have a key uh, that tells me you're doing lots of blow too. (laughs) Not at at that point, you know, luckily that didn't come till later. Um, because you probably wore that key around your neck, right? No, it was. It's even better. Is that we only got one key, and it was stolen by our Shinora manager. You know, <laughs> you know, who uh, who ran off with the key, never to be seen again. So, Jeez, I, those managers will steal anything, huh? They will. Anything that's not nailed down, they will. Holy cow! They will. He ran off with the publishing and the key to the city. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. Well, it's funny. You said you could show your two-lane ID and get into tips. 
if you show your two-lane ID now on campus, you can't even get on campus. <laughs> That's right. I'm actually, I'm actually, I teach a two-lane now, um, and I'm supposed to teach there in the fall, but, uh, but maybe I'm not, maybe the class won't be happening. What are you going to teach? What class? Oh, yeah, what subject? Oh, it's, it's, um, it's a class called Jewish Music. It's a survey of Jewish music, um, and it's jointly through Jewish studies in the music department. Okay. I think it also applies you could to counts towards your religious studies minor. Um, well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they, they think they're going to have a fall semester, but uh, I, I don't know if that's going to happen. Well, you know, uh, it may be a little bit of a bait and switch uh, ultimately because, you know, they have to put on like they're going to have an actual semester so people will pay the tuition and go there. Right. And if at the last minute they go, oops, sorry, you know, there's a big spike and uh, everybody's getting sick, you know, what can we do then? For your well, safety, you know, <laughs> for yeah, your yeah, safety, we're going to have to keep your money. Right, right. <laughs> you stay home. And you, stay you stay home. home and we'll keep your money and, you know, we'll try again next year yeah. kind of stuff. Because I work at Tulane and, and, you know, I hear things. I hear lots of things. and But, I mean – you know, they have a startup date of like August 12th or 17th like that. And I, the way, I'm looking around campus. I'm like, I don't think this is going to happen, especially now with what we're going on. And, and now we're looking at the 4th of July weekend coming up. And, you know, this state is like back hitting lots of huge numbers, uh, bad numbers. And, you know, most of the uh, student body at Tulane are nor- Northeasters, you know. A lot of them are, like a good 50, 60%. Right. And... You know, they'd be stupid to come down here because they, they, they're they kind of doing well up there and you want to come down here, whatever, you know. Yeah, they're young kids. They're looking to get the fuck out of their parents' house. They're going to roll the dice. They're going to come down one way or the other. Well, <laughs> Even if they got to sit in their apartments or, uh, you know, not go to uh, class. Yeah, well, the problem is they're spending $75,000 a year. Right. Their parents are going to want to know why. Isn't there a classroom for my kid to go to? Why is that? Right. You could do online from here in uh, Long Island, you know? Right, right. That, that kind of stuff. So sure. it is what it is. Um, it's all good. But speaking of like classes, you know, going to school and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed this thing? I noticed this thing. It started happening when this whole quarantine started. This uh, master class. Have you seen that, Renee? I have seen that. Yeah, yeah. Have we talked about this? We have not. Okay, I think it's ridiculous where you have these like millionaire actors or chefs or photographers saying, mm-hmm. let's uh, come to my, sign up for my class and I'll show you how to uh, take a picture and, and, and they're going to charge you for it. And you it's know? not cheap from what I understand. It's, no, it's, it's not rather cheap expensive. At all. So you would think these people, these millionaire chefs and actors and directors and, and photographers and fashion designers. And musicians, drug, sure. drug lords and cartel okay. people and musicians would like, say, listen, take my class for free. You know, why are you charging these fucking people? Or give the money to people who need it. Right. You know, you know, that kind of stuff. I just find that so ridiculous because I've seen it advertised constantly in the last few months. And it just it's just something that uh, makes me angry, you know. Well, because I, I think they're taking advantage of an urge like 
people think, well, I'm home. I can't go to, I, I need to do something productive. I need to right. better myself. And I see that all the time on social media. I saw it from a friend today who was going into this big thing about, um, you know, uh, being too comfortable just makes you weak. So for the next month, I'm launching into a program of making myself very uncomfortable and I'm going to, you know, this, I'll be getting up at 6 a.m. and doing this. I'm like, oh, brother, I mean, if you're going to do it, do it, man, that's fine. But, you know, it's like, I don't know, again, the, the, uh, the virtue signaling that, that, that people feel compelled towards and, uh, but, but just the, the self-improvement that everyone thinks, well, I'm going to, you know, people crave control and this is a situation where none of us have very much control. So, you know, the human spirit, they think, well, if I can just get enough control over myself, I will, it will give me something. And, but, uh, you know, is this friend, uh, this friend of yours, a chronic masturbator? I, you know, I don't know him that well. He's not that good of a friend. So oh, okay. I'm not, I'm not, I, could, I couldn't say one way or another. Okay. Just ask me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, again, I do not know. Um, so, well, well, you mentioned this uh, this Jewish music class. Uh, so, in well, you know, we we were talking a little bit earlier today before the program about about your. Uh, you know, your, your journey in, in Judaism and how, you know, you, you grew up as, as a, I guess, from, in a secular house, Jewish household for the most part. Yeah. Sort of classic reform Jewish upbringing. You know, I've had a bar mitzvah. I can read Hebrew, but I can't, don't, can't understand Hebrew. Right. Right. That's just like, like me, I'm in the same position. Um, but uh, but but then through playing, you know, you you kind of stumble into the the New Orleans Klezmer All Stars, and you were saying you you were an accidental accordion player because yes, just through then, yeah Go well ac- accidental accordion player, and then uh, through that an accidental ambassador for Jewish music. Um, it was very uh, when we started the band, it was. Um, it was, you know, that time in, on, in the early 90s on Frenchman Street when it was very hip to just choose a, some interesting music and learn it and play it for people. And um, it wasn't, and that's what New Orleans music was at that point. Um, let's were great bands. Like the Iguanas came out of, people just wanted to dance. They didn't want to dance to um what people's perception of new orleans music was and so we started the klezmers initially um we knew a few yiddish tunes but mostly it was other kinds of tunes but the reaction we got to the klezmer stuff was the reaction we wanted to get all the time Um, people really seemed to just be excited because it was something they hadn't really uh, experienced before and so we started to explore that and we would tell anyone would, would ask us what kind of music it was. And we would say anything but Jewish, you know, we would say yeah. it's <laughs> Eastern European peasant, gypsy folk, <laughs> so that, you know, but we never would say it's Jewish because mm-hmm. we were afraid that that would label us, drive people away. We were like our, we were, anti-Semitic against ourselves, you know? Um, well, yeah, but you know, I think, typical, I, you know, I think wearing ahead, those yarmulkes you know, didn't help. 
Exactly. And, and hanging out our big circumcised. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. No, we didn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You, you said it. I, so anyway, okay. so that was, that was the, um, but then over time uh, we became more comfortable with it. And, and what was strange about it was because, because now it's not such a strange thing. There's these bands that have been around Google Bordello and uh, Balkan beatbox and this kind of thing. But we were back in the early 90s getting into an old plumbing van and going around playing punk rock clubs, um, you know, playing traditional Yiddish music. But it's with the energy of a punk rock band, you know, and right. um, and it, it was um, it turns out it was, you know, kind of unique. So that was it was a lot of fun. And, and I think that if you, uh, you know, it there's not a lot of inspiration in religion for, um, and so especially for young kids. And so when kids, Jewish kids in particular started to see our band and be like, Oh, that's not like the polyester wearing comb over rabbi (laughs) kind of vibe. It's, the it's it's something and they're jewish and they're doing something jewish wait a minute i didn't know you could get high and play wild music like that's jewish you know like and so that so that's how we became accidental ambassadors for like this centuries old tradition of basically yiddish party music you know which 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 this is the kind of stuff they don't tell they keep they try to keep away from you you know, when you're a Jew or when you're a kid, you know, they don't tell you, you know, yeah, you're supposed to drink a lot and throw down and chase women or whatever, you know. They want you to think about the Talmud and uh, and uh, and shul and the yeshiva and uh, study and yes, yes. Yeah, but even that, like even that, they keep away from you. They just want okay. you to, you know, they, they just, I, I don't even know what, what it what it was. What be it, a what lawyer, it, engineer, or yeah, a doctor. Yes, they. Okay. Yes, it's like this strange, um, the strange way that it was presented with a with a kind of pride, but no information. Um, so, but that was just that's my personal experience, and so it, it's right. been a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of growth. But right to me, it's just it's fun, you know. I just like to me, it's just interesting. It's like when you're handed something that coincidentally that you're interested in it's fun to explore it you know so now you hooked up with jonathan freilich freilich yeah 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 and he 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 went to the same high school that i went to jonathan and he ended up that's right that's right another uni high uh graduate yeah yeah yeah. attendee Um, yes but so were you in the naked orchestra well i was the first conductor of the naked orchestra Mm, Um, okay and so way back at the original, when that band first started, um, I conducted their first recording session and I conducted their first couple gigs and their first triumphant gig at Tipitina's um, was pretty exciting. And, uh, but then I, I don't know what happened. I went away and things kind of changed. And then I guest conducted a song once, but I've never played in the band. But oh, okay. I, but I was okay. the maestro for a minute. Nice, nice, nice. Well, Manny, you know, I, I'm looking at my cocktail and, uh, you know, I, I'm overdue. I don't know about you. Sure, let's do it. 
So, uh, 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 Glenn, we always take a little break and, and uh, refresh our cocktails. Uh, the nation knows all about this. So uh, um, why don't we all take a little break and make a new cocktail, and we'll be right back. Be right back. And we're back. Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coleman, back with our guest, Mr. Glenn Hartman. So, Manny, uh, you know, we, we have our, our wonderful sponsor. We had him on the, the program as a guest, the, the, the man behind the, the, uh, the Velo Bar. But uh, so why don't you tell the people about the Velo Bar CBD? Velo Bar is a CBD protein bar. Yes. We've talked about this. And, yes. Uh, it tastes great. It's a, it's a healthy protein bar that fills you up and calms you down. Boy, and yes, we need I to need be that. calmed down in this time in our lives, in this world that we live in. Fuck we, yes. need relief. we need relief right now. Oh, the yes. whole goddamn world is freaking out, man. <laughs> and this fellow bar, I'll tell you, man, I dig this fellow bar. It's, it's, yep. it's, it's fucking good. It's a plant-based protein uh, uh, bar from superfood ingredients like pumpkin seeds, hemp hearts, chia seeds. It's a relief bar. It's a, it's a breakfast bar. You can have it after a workout. Tastes fucking mm-hmm. great. And the best thing about it is it comes in two great flavors, dark chocolate peanut butter. And I love them. I, 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 I eat them like I eat my sticks of butter. Right, it's, right, right. That might be. <laughs> <laughs> my, you know, uh, and right now, if you go to VeloBarCBD.com, you can order. And right now, if you order and use the uh, promo code TroubledMen15, You'll get 15% off your order. And nice. as always, shipping is free. Shipping is free. Part. So Nation, tell your friends about it. If you haven't tried it already, try it or tell your friends. It's a great bar. Uh, I love them. I, I got uh, uh, my little sister out in uh, the Bay Area. She's eating them up like uh, uh, jelly beans. She loves them. Okay. Uh, it's a healthy bar. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's what the kids are doing. So do right. it. You know, right. Unders- um, un- I understand that the nation has responded uh, to the Velo Bar, uh, the, the Velo Bar CBD bar, in, in a big yes. way. And then, yeah, 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 they're getting, uh, uh, as I'm told uh, by our, our friend at VeloBarCBD.com, uh, is they're getting t- lots of orders from the nation, and they appreciate it. Uh, tell all your friends and check it out. So go to VeloBarCBD.com, use TroubledMen15 promo code, get fifty percent off your order. Free shipping. You can't go wrong. And come on, you're, you're sitting at home. You got tons of energy, and you and you go out there. You you punch a brick wall. You, you run around the block a few times, and you're stressed out. You were talking uh, earlier about uh, some guy you know who uh, is is trying to do something. Have right, right, a right. bar. Yeah. How know? much How much butter can you eat? So, you know, right, exactly. switch it up. Exactly. Switch it up. Switch yeah. it up. Right on. But I'm excited. Yeah, it's excited. So check it out. Uh, you won't be disappointed. And if you are, um, then you can tell me to fuck yeah. off. I don't live care. and learn, live and learn. Yeah. Live right and, on. Learn. And, and, uh, you know, nation out there, if you want to, uh, 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 support the Troubleman podcast directly, you know, you can jump on our, uh, PayPal account there. It's right in the show notes and, uh, and the, the Facebook page. And, uh, you know, you can, you can, uh, it's we call it the cocktail fund, but we don't only buy cocktails with it. You know, we, we keep ourselves on the air and uh, you know pay for all of our expenses. And so uh, you know, uh, buy us a drink and buy yourself a drink. So uh, uh, back to our guest, Mr. Glenn Hartman, because his story is very compelling. So uh, 
you you were talking about how you you'd gotten into Jewish music and and the, with the Klezmer All Stars, but but yet your your original uh, aching yearning desire to be to be a rock star had not been quelled by your your <laughs> by the uh, the Klezmer All Stars. So you 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 go out and you're you're back to playing B three organ, and you you go out and you're playing with uh, a whole bunch of different bands like uh, Anders Osborne. You're out on the road with him. And uh, was was it? Now you played the. There's a story you told me about playing the Hollywood Bowl. Who was that with? That was with the Klezmer All Stars. Okay, because I love this story. This gets back to your parents. Do you want to? Do you remember the story? You want me to tell to to lead you off, or can you just tell it? <laughs> well, it's interesting because I was just with my parents, um, and um, so it was the the Hollywood Bowl. Um, we were playing the Playboy Jazz Festival. Which, oh, nice. which was um, kind of an amazing lineup that day with um, Bill Cosby was the MC. Oh, and, very, very and, talented guy. <laughs> <laughs> America's you <know>? dad. <laughs> and um, <laughs> America's dad. And uh, Hugh Hefner was there, you know. Um, okay. And uh, America's granddad. America's <laughs> granddad. Um, uh Dave Brubeck okay. played the day we played, and um, uh, Ozo Motley, um, uh-huh. Klezmer's, yeah, um, uh, oh, freaking Al Jarreau. <laughs> you know, okay. I mean, right. it was like a crazy lineup, and they had the the Hollywood Bowl. It you know has a has a, a rotating stage, so we would we set up completely, you know, un out of view. And then, like the stage turns as Bill Cosby, you know, is introducing us while we're playing. Okay, you know, and they like eight, I guess they have two PA's, or I don't, you know, however the magic works. And they slip, you know, they crossfade one band out as it they turn the stage, you know, like wow. rotate around. It was pretty rad. But anyways, so it's uh, happens to be Father's Day, and. Um, and my my parents are there because they live in Los Angeles, and I and I was able to get them a box, um, and they're in a box right coincidentally next to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, okay. In, in the box, and uh, and I you know announce, hey, it's Father's Day, and my father's here, and um, and uh, I mean, this might maybe this isn't the story you wanted to hear, but uh, but anyway, so. We have this triumphant gig because I think there was seventeen thousand people there, at the Hollywood Bowl, and um, nice. And we on the way home, my dad turns to me and he says, "So, you know, is do you think uh, your career is going anywhere? Like, is, maybe this is, like what's next?" And I'm just kind of like, "Oh, dad." Well- Will 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 nothing be enough? What, what do I have to do? To no, that's exactly the story I was hoping for. It was like no, because I can picture it. That's that sounds like something my fucking father would do. You know, it's like in fact he's done that. I've heard that from other people where I'm on stage somewhere, you know, and and they're going, yeah, my father, my father's turning to him, going, yeah, um, I hope he goes back to school soon. You know, it's like what the, what the yeah. fuck you, man. Yes. 
Well, I heard at Larry, there was a, I one time I heard Larry Carlton being interviewed and he said it's a very similar story. He said he was finally headlining the Hollywood bowl by him, you know, and, and he flew his dad in to see the show and his dad at the whole thing's over. And he's like, so dad, you know, what'd you think? He goes, well, I guess if you like that kind of music, that was certainly some of it. <laughs> like, okay. Like, I, I thought I thought you were going to say on the ride home, your your dad got you a tryout with the Lakers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. No. Well, I was going to ask you if, if Bill Cosby uh, gave you anything to drink that night, but no. Uh, the, the the best part was getting actually of playing there was getting paid because they had a um, you got ushered into this room. And um, there was a very old Jewish accountant who was who and there were two giant bouncers outside the door. And he, you know, had uh, I mean, like so classic, like Marty Fufkin himself, you know, was there. Yeah. And, he, and he just <laughs> and he goes, it was a very good show. And we can sign here and then like eight thousand dollars in cash, you know, you know like. Right, right, right. At a a festival, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then like, unlike any other place you play in the United States, they say, he said, can we have a list of your songs? This is what they would do in Europe. And they paid us publishing. Wow. You know, which was like another, you know, $700 or something. You're like, are you kidding me? Like they would do do that at all the time in Europe, but you're like, oh, you know. Well, still a strong union state, one of the few, California, you know, it's like, uh, I, I know you, they, they have, we've, the iguanas have been brought out there by these different union groups. One of them is like uh, working California or something. And, and yeah, it's, it's one of those places that you can't touch your own equipment on once you get onto the stage, they have stage hands that have to move your equipment for you. Yes. Staying in California after Katrina, you wind up back in the Bay area this time. And, and, uh, you can talk about that, but I encountered you there when you were booking the purple onion. Yes. Which is, you know, you're talking which is about a, a comedy. A, a, yes. Well, purple onion is, was a, a, a classic, a legendary jazz club, also comedy club in, in what the sixties, late sixties into the early seventies. Yeah, it was uh, it was really known in the '60s as, um, I mean, you know, Lenny Bruce, Phyllis Diller did her first gig there. She like wow. did she like played an open mic, you know? Really? Um, wow! You know, the Smothers Brothers recorded a record there. Um, you know, just all kinds of crazy legends um, worked that room. It's under the street. You you walk downstairs and uh, you can see uh, cars driving over one edge of the the roof. Yes, but but I'll tell you the thing about that whole experience, which was crazy for me, is that there's this really old photo of the purple onion, and I and that you know the was framed on the wall, and I go and I'm looking at this photo, and I look at and everything is focused on this, you know, this old car from the fifties and the says purple onion and everything. But I look at the, at the sign above it on the same building and it says Columbo and sons accordion manufacturers. 
And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, and I went and um, it turns out that in that building on the top floor was an accordion factory. And I went wow. and I found the grandson of the person who started it in a, in a, like a old age home in San Rafael hmm. and, um, and kill them and killed them. Yes. <laughs> and um and ended up you know like meeting him and asking him all these questions and i bought an accordion um from him and wow just learned a no whole kidding. bunch of crazy s- stuff and he gave me tools that they used to use in the factory like these crazy old wooden accordion tools it, yeah it was kind of a, nice so that nice. to me was exciting but you know no one nobody cares Oh, no, we care. That's why I brought it up. Now, and Manny, uh, while we're in San Francisco, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, I remember a few episodes back, you started, you, you said you had a Mitchell Brothers story. And uh, I was um, thinking, would, would you, you care to go into that now or you want to take a pass on that? Um, I'm trying to remember. There's a couple of them, actually. Well, you tell um, any of them. Well, there's one. Them, but, there's okay. one. Uh, you had mentioned. Um, you had mentioned our guest had mentioned that uh, you know how how uh, the Chili Peppers had um, you know he thought the Chili Peppers had done a Neville Brothers song or they did do a Neville Brothers song but right right Africa yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Africa and stuff um, but there's this great story where um, uh, uh, Flea is doing a gig in uh, San Francisco with the Chili Peppers and this is you know mid, early to mid eighties and um, he uh, I guess during or before or after a gig, he goes with somebody uh, to um, to the Mitchell Brothers Sex Emporium, mm-hmm. you know, which is a which is still there, I think. Yeah, was yeah there. right next to the Great yeah. American Music Hall on O'Farrell Street. Yes. Right, it's still there. And um, uh, anyway, um, he goes uh, he goes into one of those uh, those booths where there's that glass. And the curtain goes up, and there's a girl on the other side of the glass. Yes. And uh, she can't, I don't know, she can't see you, you can see her, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of stuff. And, and this is when um, the Peppers are trying to find their, uh, their, um, uh, use their wackiness to promote themselves. So they, they wore these, their leather jackets, and they had the tin cups on, on the shoulder buckles, attached to their shoulder buckles. And... Um, I, I don't know if I told this. Uh, anyway. No, um, no, you didn't. Um, the girl behind the glass, who's a beautiful, beautiful, sexy girl, uh, she says, what's that cup for? And um, Flea says, um, oh, that's just my fashion. And then she squats up right to the glass and spreads her pushy, pussy out and goes, this is mine. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> this is mine, and you know uh, he he got really excited about it, and he's a young man, and sure, uh, you, you can tell where it goes from there. You know, <laughs> yeah, I well, wasn't expecting that story, but that's that, <laughs> yeah. there. You go. That's that's the good thing about a story is you never know where it's going to well, end. You know, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, if we could flee on the show, I'm sure he could describe it much better than I did because he was there. Uh, uh, right, uh, right, right, right. But well, he, to... he told me this story a uh, long, long time ago. And, um, uh, yeah, there's a couple of stories I think I got there. I, last time I was in San Francisco, uh, I was there with my family, in fact. 
and um, my wife was doing a, some kind of seminar, and me and the kid were just, you know, hanging out. And uh, my brother-in-law picked us up to go out to dinner, and we drove right by the O'Farrell Theater, and it it looks exactly the same. I mean, yeah. Okay. I'll tell you one thing though. Uh, my brother-in-law is a fucking uh, great driver because the amount of crazy homeless people around that area has just tripled since you know you know since the time I'd been there before. And it was I always mean, a lot. Oh yeah, there was tons, tons. The tenderloin fact, we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, tenderloin district. In fact, we were we had a hotel like a Hilton hotel in the tenderloin, and I remember going out like Friday afternoon to go get something at the store the local store, and this woman comes up and goes, you got $2? I said, no, I don't have $2. And as I'm walking back from the store, she goes, you got $1.75? <laughs> I said, I don't have $1.75. <laughs> so fast forward like six hours, I have to go. I think, I think the hotel did, the, I don't know, there was something. I had to keep going back to the store for something. And I went back, she goes, you got a dollar? Ten foil? No. Yeah, anyway. something. Yeah, maybe tin pool. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, all right. Yeah. I, I, maybe uh, bottles because I didn't want to. Uh, anyway, so the, the last time I went, I crossed her, which was maybe three days later. It went down from like three dollars to the last time I saw her, it was a quarter. Oh, jeez! <laughs> like every little bit helps. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, you know what? I I felt bad for her, so I I I, I, I reached in my pocket. And I punched her in the mouth. Anyway, I was going to say you let her blow you for a quarter. Okay, no, 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 no. no I, I reached in my pocket and uh, I punched her in the mouth. No, she's a she's a good girl. She's, she's sure. A, yes, yes, she's yes. a good woman. I'm sure she's uh, yes, possibly. In fact, uh, I think she's on the city council now, Sam. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say potential running mate for uh, for uh, uh, Biden. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or uh, yeah, whoever. Yep. Anyway, let's get back to our guests. Well, to our when, guests. I, when I used to, when I, there was a club that opened up in the Tenderloin, and it was, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was booked by my good friend, Mr. Ed Ivey, who you might know is a kind of a punk rocker in his own right. But he, um, mm -hmm. he was, uh, you know, it was like this gig that you, I don't think they had a real liquor license. They just had like shoju cocktails, like the Korean rice wine stuff or whatever hmm. but it was always like the most extreme load in and load out from this place because of the street scene you know you'd be <laughs> like out there and i just remember this this one woman you know like yelling up tyrone motherfucker i know you're in there you know <laughs> <laughs> get down here come to the window you <laughs> just like going on and on and on you know that i just i wanted to get involved in it you know sure sure yeah yeah you know can i help you ma'am do we know do you know do you, i think i might know tyrone you know? right right <laughs> um but yeah, you can do that in the tenderloin, man. You can uh, like like the like there's a the security gates open, you just kind of stroll in and somebody invites you in. So I'm like, mm, uh, okay, well, I don't know. <laughs> Let's see what happens here. Yeah. Um uh, No, that was yeah, I did, you know, being from LA, there was all the the SoCal no cal kind of rivalry kind of thing with with bands and art and stuff like that. So, but the times I did go to the Bay Area, I always enjoyed it. 
I always enjoyed it. I just thought, uh, for me, as being a young uh, bachelor at that time, uh, the women in, in SoCal were just so much more beautiful than the girls in NoCal. Yeah, I don't, huh. you know, I'm not, you know, nor I hit when I got to San Francisco, it was, um, it was over there. Honestly, I mean, there was. It's a beautiful, stunningly beautiful place, um, and there is a lot of good ethnic food, but. Um, you know, you're either looking for parking or sorting your garbage. Those are like the, the, <laughs> the top two things you could be doing there. Right. Um, and and, and, and uh, forget uh, driving a stick shift in San Francisco. Oh, I burned a clutch in the, oh, you know, like in the first yeah. two years I was there, I was burned my clutch. Yeah, I couldn't do that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't understand how anyone could live there now. I mean, it's just, it's insanity there. Prohibitively yeah. expensive, yeah, and cra- crazy, man. No, uh, yeah, it, it just can't happen. Yeah, my dad, well, who's, so, who's a diehard okay. New Yorker, you know, through and through, would always, he, he would come and visit us. And um, first, my mom hated it because it was so cold. You know, it's like always so fucking cold. And my dad's like, eh, want to be New York. <laughs> San Francisco, yeah, right. Just... <laughs> Yeah, Dismissive. yeah, I see that. I see that too. But some of the best Peking duck I've ever had in my life. Yeah, well, the food. Okay. Yeah, that's the. It's it's about the ethnic food and the art and yes. the natural beauty for sure. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, and that's about it. Well, while you were out there, um, you know, you, you you took you started off with the New Orleans Klezmer All Stars here in New Orleans, and you know, you you became uh very adept at all that material and and so you brought that back out there with you and you wind up having a huge career in playing synagogues and playing you know holidays uh you know passover purim uh you know jazz shabbat which i'm sure you you uh introduced out there and you were telling me earlier that that actually through the music you wind up having um you, you know, you kind of get to the spiritual part that is of true. Judaism. That is true. I used to say, um, you know how they have pay to play, you know, in the if you're a rock band in L.A. This was right. pay, this was paid to pray. Um, pay to pray. <laughs> I was, but I was I was paid to pray. You know, so it, but I, I did. I started um, it as a gig, and then through time, you know, it just I became more. Um, you know, I lost myself. I, you know, I just started participating in what was going on around me, um, and it and it made it more special for sure. Right. Um, well, music, especially you know, to a musician, music music is the most sincere, direct form of prayer. It really is. You know, that's that's why people like to do it, whether you you know uh, uh, think of it in those terms or not. It's it's time and attention which is, you know, a form of prayer. And it's the one time, like when I've had to practice recently for a couple of gigs I did. And when I'm practicing for something, or of course playing a gig, you realize, Oh, when I'm doing this, I don't think about anything else. I can't think about anything else. You truly lose yourself and it becomes this kind of conduit, this kind of spiritual, uh, I don't know. Yes. Well, they know that that's actually what klezmer means. I don't know if you know this, but I didn't. So klezmer is um, the a conjunction of two Hebrew words, clay, which means um, instrument or vessel, um, okay. and zemer, which means song. 
So the idea is that the instrument, the musician with their instrument is a conduit for the music from another place. That's actually what the, it, it refers to the music and it only later, um, and it refers to the musician, not the music is what I'm saying. So it's right. like the musician is a klezmer and the name of the band would be klezmorum, would be pl- plural. But the music only became called klezmer music much, much, much later. It was called, they would more, they would call it um, by the names of the dances. They'd say, play the freilachs, play the, you know, they play the types of dances and the musicians were referred to as klezmorum. And it was also interchangeable with complete low life scum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it was the last person you wanted hanging around was a wandering musician, you know, and a particularly like, keep them away from yeah. our women. And also right, right. because the men and the women couldn't mix, but the women, but the could see the male musicians, like the klezmer would be in the middle and, mm-hmm. the, and the men would be dancing on one side, the women on the other, but they could make eye contact with the fiery violin player with the dreamy brown eyes, you know? Right, right. The deep set eyes with the sunken, the sunken eyes. The heroin addicted, the junkie violinist. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, a gypsy. He was a gypsy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of writing about that in like Shalom Aleichem stories and things just about the the, the fiery nature and, and just that, that whole kind of thing, keeping the... You know. Okay, that might be a first on the Troubleman podcast. Somebody uh, properly pronouncing the chat sound here. Oh. That's good. We like that. We like that. Uh, good for you. Good for you. But I um, Freilich didn't beat me to it. Yeah, no. Uh, he maybe he did. Maybe he did. Yeah. <laughs> he tries to white it up, you know. <laughs> um. Uh. So. So then. Then you. But you can't resist the siren call of New Orleans. No, so I would. It, you know, it's. I wanted to get back here from. I mean, I never wanted to leave, you know, Katrina caused us to leave and it was fun for a minute, but for me, it was always, um, I always wanted to come back and, um, I have two children and they were both born in new Orleans. And to me, that was like, that's something that I never had, you know, I moved here and I wasn't ever really from here. And so, but my kids were, and they, and I was like dying that they were not getting the, the benefits of growing up in this crazy and beautiful city. Um, but now we're back and my son uh, had a gig today. So nice. And, and your and, kids are really and, blossoming here, but you know, both and, of them, and I know your son is uh, both of them are multi-talented, but your son's a great musician and uh, quite a, quite a, has quite a fashion sense as well. Yeah. <laughs> he's yes, uh, my he's daughter. killing it in high school. That's yes, great. My uh, daughter as well. But, but here's, here's the, this was the classic, for me today was my son was playing like one of his first gigs and um, playing bass oddly. And, um, okay. and he, uh, and he sends me a text. Um, hey dad, do you remember playing uh, Rob Florence's wedding? And I'm like, yeah, I think I remember that. Oh, his son is the, uh, is the drummer in this band that I'm playing with. I'm like, Oh yeah. That's pretty. That's New Orleans, baby. That's 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 what happens, man. It's, <laughs> it's 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 so small. It's everything is connected in five different ways. That's crazy. Well, yes. Yeah. 
And that's the thing that scares me the most. Yeah. About this city. <laughs> There's nowhere to escape to. You can't yeah. hide. <laughs> you can't hide in this city. There's no way. Yeah. So let me ask you, man, uh, 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 when you moved here uh, that first time, because uh, when I came here in 2000, the one thing uh, that I missed the most was tacos and burritos. Mm, and, yes. Uh, now you can get them now, but at, when I first moved here, it was like it was the worst Mexican food ever here. That yes. Really was, yeah. All, well, it was the worst. It was the worst ethnic food. When I moved yeah. here in the eighties, there was no real ethnic food to speak of. There was one, uh, you know, Vietnamese was a little. There was oh no, we we had Vietnamese food, food, we had Italian food, we didn't have Mexican food. Yeah, yeah, but but yes. But now after Katrina, you got all that good stuff. Well, where's your favorite taco, Manny? <laughs> Here in this city? Yeah. Yes. In my own kitchen. That's my favorite well, taco. Well, my okay. okay. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, anyway, no. That, I, uh, I don't understand a lot of things. You know, I, we're talking about food. And, you know, what's something that came up that I didn't understand is, is uh, food banks. Have you heard about this food banks? I mean, I've heard that word. I'm not sure what it means, but. Well, I didn't understand, but apparently during this whole pandemic, uh, people can go to food banks and apparently uh, withdraw food. Okay. You know, I don't understand any of it because um, I, I just thought I could keep my food in my house, but apparently there are banks that have food. Okay. I don't get it. You can take a loan. Take a loan. I on. guess you could take a loan on some bread and eggs and milk and and stuff. Uh, but you know, I, I don't trust banks, so I'm not going to a food bank. Yeah, yeah, they're controlled by the Jews. <laughs> probably, probably. That's what I probably. hear. I don't know. You know, um, kosher. Yeah. Uh, are well, we you know, kosher? Uh, a good friend of mine's father uh, was the head of Jewish studies at UCLA. Dr. Irving White, Rabbi Irving White, mm-hmm. and uh, we were in, I was in high school with his son, and, and I used to hang out there a lot of this house, and uh, he always said, uh, Manny, uh, don't eat, ever eat kosher food. It's the worst. It's the worst ever. Don't ever eat it. And uh, so I believed him. Yeah. <laughs> According to <laughs> Rabbi White. Yeah, Rabbi <laughs> Irving White, the head of UCLA Jewish Studies, he, he always said, uh, don't ever eat kosher. It's it is it, no. it is quite a racket. I was playing. Yeah. A, I was playing a. Um, the the Klezmers got hired to play like a such a high end wedding at the Four Seasons in Las Vegas, and they it, the reason it was at the Four Seasons was it was one of the only kitchens that they that you could kosher for <laughs> a banquet for an Orthodox Jewish wedding. So they had to bring in. Um, I don't I doubt you've seen someone kosher a kitchen, but you have to put flame to all the surfaces to get them straight. And uh, so, and then you pay, you know, these crazy Orthodox Jews to observe, you know, uh, make sure it's going down the way it's supposed to go down. And um, at one point, this crazy, uh, kerfuffle breaks out in the kitchen and this panic and some, I don't know if the milk touched the meat counter or 
if, God forbid. if someone whipped out some bacon or what happened, but they, they had, they pulled out the, you're going to think I'm making this up, but I am not. They pulled out a saw and they cut off the end of the counter. Like nice. oh circumcised God. the bitch. What? <laughs> Nice, nice. I, I mean, mean, you got you to admire commitment there. Very extreme. You know, and that, you and that wedding the- only lasted four years. It's okay. that is true. I knew the bride and groom; they're divorced. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, I knew yeah. it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> but there's, you, you know, know it's, it's those great rituals, you know, that are they're fun. There was other great things at that wedding. That at one point, the family took out these crazy, intricate woven. Arabic robe, like Middle Eastern robes, then they put them on and did some strange dance. I don't know. Huh, okay. Were they were they uh, Sephardic Jews? Uh, who's Sephardic? It stinks in here. Um, you know, yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think they were Sephardic Jews. Okay, okay. Um, but uh, then uh, talking about uh, uh, being kosher, then they have glot kosher, which uh, is a, like a whole other level of... Uh, someone asked me the other day, like... They, the guy was like, so do you keep kosher? And I said, I keep kosher style. Kosher style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, I, I, I said, you know, I'll eat a, a, a Burger King hamburger. I won't eat a Burger King cheeseburger. But, yeah. you know, it's so. And I know you kind of, I've heard you use the, fla- the phrase, uh, your flexidox. Flexidox. <laughs> yes. Well, well, I've come up talk with, about that. I've come up, well, I was coming to saying on kosher is, is I've discovered a new thing, which is eco-kosher. Okay. Which is like, you know, it's not necessarily about, you know, who killed the chicken. It's just about, um, is it ruining the How earth? is it raised? Yeah. Was, are you, was it happy yeah, before you, you, you killed it? Are you it? ruining yeah, yeah. the earth by the choices you're making? You know, it's like okay. eco kosher. But yeah. Are I'm, you getting into that? I'm flexidox. You know, it's like the, the right. important thing about um, Passover is being with my family. So meaning my extended family, my brothers and my mom and dad in California. And so if we can't get together on Passover, which might be on a Wednesday, we know we'll move, move Passover to the Saturday when it's okay. more, more convenient to travel. So, yes. so that's Flexidox at its, you know, Nice, nice. Well, I, I was explaining to this person. I said, like, like all, uh, like everyone in the United States, we have a cafeteria religion. You know, we we pick the things that we like about our, our religion, and we leave the things that are that we don't like or you know inconvenient. That's yes. in many people. Well, like my mom told me, if you you can't get a tattoo because you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery, and I was and I just said, and you're not supposed to drive on Shabbat. I mean, like what? You're going to pick one rule out of the Torah to enforce. Because- well, because because <laughs> they won't know if, if you drove on Shabbat or not, but they'll know if you have a tattoo. So, you know, it's, 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 listen to your mother. She's, listen you know, listen she might, to your mother. She might, be right, she might be right about something here. So, um, I don't know, Manny. Uh, do we have other burning questions here? We've covered a lot of material. Yeah, uh, I, do, I don't roll on Shabbat. I just want to put that out oh, there. Yeah. I don't roll on Shabbat. Uh, but yeah, I think we have a show. And, and thank you, uh, Mr. Hartman. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you were able to uh, uh, pinch hit tonight. Yes, yes. But, we, had uh, a, we had another guest who, uh, who was all lined up. And uh, the guest texted me earlier and said, um, I can't do the show tonight. And I thought the next, the next 
sentence was going to be, uh, I listened to some of the earlier podcasts, but it, no, in fact, uh, the person had had a, a little bit of a health uh, scare and uh, was in the hospital. Uh, they're fine. And it's, it wasn't COVID. It was uh, something else. But, uh, you know, so uh, we, we've always had a, a few guests lined up in our, in our back pocket. It's kind of like a break glass in case of emergency. And, and Glenn, you've been one of those guests. Now, we used you up tonight, so, but, uh, but thank God you were there. It was, I, you know, it's okay. I will, you can put me back under glass. And I'll remain there till I die. <laughs> <laughs> well, All right. Well, thank you, Glenn. Thank you. And um, what would we always say on the Troubled Men podcast? You know, Glenn, in the Troubled Nation, we always like to say, uh, trouble never ends. But the struggle continues. Good night. Yes. Good night. Good night.